So, good evening. It's great to see you. Um, we are in week six of our series in the book of Mark. We've been walking through a chapter a week, and we are now on week six. And helpfully, we're also in Mark six. So it's really hard to get lost in this series um, because we're spelling it out as we go. And we've said this all along, um, that we're taking this term to, to reconsider Jesus, to reconsider who he is what he does, who he can be for us, and what that means for us in our lives. Um, The book of Mark is is one of the accounts of Jesus' life on earth, and it is super fast-paced. In every chapter alone, there's about four or five different stories going on, and it's kind of, it's like, you know, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and we went there, and we did this, and there's barely room to take a breath um, in the midst of it. You've got to keep up with it. There is something new around every corner. It's kind of a hold no frills drama. But it is more than just an interesting read. It is a very interesting read. It's, it's a high-paced drama, but it is more than just an interesting read. Because you see, all these stories that we've been reading are revealing something to us. That's what they're doing. It is a fast-paced narrative, but it is a slow reveal. It's a slow reveal, peeling back the layers of this thing called the kingdom of God and saying to each of us, come and have a closer look. Come and have a closer look at who Jesus is. Because if he is who he says he is, if he is alive, if he does and offers to us what he says he will do and offers to us, then this affects you. This affects you tonight, right now. This message that we're reading tonight has something to do with you. We're invited to come and stand right in the middle of these accounts and to see who is Jesus from this vantage point. And we're all invited to do that. You know, whether you've known and loved Jesus your whole life or whether you are brand new and you're just figuring this stuff out. We are all invited to come and stand right in the middle of the story and to see who is Jesus for me. So, like I said, we're in Mark 6. It's a pretty famous story. You might, you might have heard it before. I'm going to read it. Normally we do this thing where we say, like, if you have a Bible, please get it out and it'll be on the screen. And we have those little things that we go through together every week. Those are the things that we say. But this week uh, we're doing something different because, you know, why not? I'm in charge right now, so, you know, I'm going to do something different. Um, So I'm going to read this story, and I would like you, instead of following along the words, um, especially in a familiar story, it can be really easy to kind of just get caught up in the things that you already know. I want you to take some time um, this evening to find yourself in the middle of that story. So as I read, I want you to use your imagination. You might want to close your eyes as well if that helps you. And I want you to place yourself somewhere in the story that I'm going to read. You could be an onlooker or a spectator. You could be one of the disciples if you really want to be, whatever, wherever you want to find yourself. Place yourself somewhere in the story because you were invited to come and stand in the middle of it to see who is Jesus whenever I look at him like this. So I'm going to read. Um, you, might, 
I'm going to close your eyes, like I said, if that helps you concentrate. But find yourself in this story. So this is Mark chapter 6, from verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus told them to make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, He gave thanks, and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Let me pray. So Jesus, we want to find you in the midst of this story today, and we want to find you close beside us as well, because we know that that will make all the difference whenever we know you close beside us. So we welcome you, we invite you, we want to know what you have to say to us this evening. Amen. So I have this friend called Chris, um, and Chris is a composer. Uh, he writes like crazy mental music that I, I do not understand half the time. And he uses loads of samples. He creates these like really powerful, arresting soundscapes. They are, they are super impressive. Like when I listen to them, I am impressed by what my friend Chris can do. It's incredible. But there's something else as well. You see, Chris uh, Chris is a slave to melody. He is a slave to gorgeous harmony. So in the middle of all this like crazy music that is challenging my mind and kind of schooling me in virtuosity, there will be this, this line, this melody or this harmony that just gets you. And it makes you feel something. And it makes me love his music. Because the other stuff is really impressive. But there's something about that thing that stirs my heart. It's incredible. And I think that that's what this, what this story shows us a little bit. 
Because we have this miracle, which is like really impressive, you know, it is powerful, it is outwith the kind of the means of, of, of our human capabilities, you know, it, it pushes our, our capacity for reason and rationale and of what's possible. Like 5,000 people, probably more in fact, fed with just five loaves of bread and a couple of bits of fish. It is incredible. It's amazing. It challenges us. It impresses us. Wow. It puts God's power right on display in the bright, wide light of day for everyone to see. But underneath it and in and around it, there is this thread that runs parallel, which is a little bit quieter. But there's something there that gets right to the heart. Because you see, the driving force behind this miracle was love. It was compassion. There's a theologian called Tom Wright. And he says that when he's writing about this particular passage of scripture, he says that this display shows us that the kingdom of God is not simply a matter of power, but it's also one of overflowing love. That God's kingdom is not simply one of power, but also one of overflowing love. And we're looking at this slow reveal of the kingdom of God, and it is so important that we see the power. But it is equally as important that we see what fuels it, which is overflowing love. So why is, why is that important? Well, let's look at that power piece first. The context here really helps us to understand. You see, the people at this time, they were looking for a powerful person. They were looking for a powerful leader. Because the promise was that they were waiting on this Messiah to come, who would be the true king. You know, he would restore all of these things to the Jewish people. And the way that they read that often was that he would come and he would usurp the current rulers to save the Jews from their current situation, to make their life here on earth so much better because right now it wasn't so good. I mean, you only have to skip back a few verses in this chapter that we're in to see what was going on, to see what it was like to live in this time We read earlier in chapter 6 about John the Baptist, who you might have heard of, and we read about him a few weeks ago. He's already imprisoned, and earlier in this chapter we read about him being beheaded for sport, for the sport of the king at a party. I mean, it is volatile, and it is fearful. Plots are rife here. They are looking for a leader. They're looking for someone powerful. Essentially what they're looking for is a military leader, really. You know, someone to lead an uprising. There is disruption, there is uncertainty, and people want to know who they are to align themselves to. And they've heard rumors of who Jesus is. They've heard rumors of who he might be, the long-awaited one 
And so, quite literally, they ran after him. In verse 33 we read, But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Because you see, he was doing all of these cool things and the government wasn't happy with him and he said all of these amazing things and he was, he was authoritative, you know? This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus who is powerful, who's doing incredible things. Clearly he is and that's what they're running after, you know? They're running after power. And none of that necessarily bad because that's actually what they got you know he did this incredible miracle right in front of them they got to see his power on display the kingdom of God here is made known through displays of power but there is another piece of the story here because like I said the kingdom of God is not simply one of power but it is also one of overflowing love. And Jesus, what, um, what we see here is we see some of Jesus' working. You know, that's what Mark lets us see. We see how he got there. So what do I mean? Like, do you remember, do you remember like in maths, whenever you would have uh, like a problem at the top of the page, and then they would give you like a whole page to figure it out, which I always thought was just very optimistic that I would need a whole page. Uh, And then you would have your answer and you would have to show your teacher like, this is how I got from this thing to this thing and this is why I'm correct. And I always find that really stressful because uh, I was not so hot on the the numbers. Um, So, but what I had done well was I had chosen my seat in my class exceptionally well because I sat beside someone who was excellent at maths. Um, And while they were very, very good at maths, what they were poor at was uh, covering their work. So... (laughs) And what I was excellent at was the sly stealing of the answers. So, yes, my confession to you this evening is that when I was in school, I used to copy maths from the person beside me. And, you know, no one's perfect. So, uh, there we go. I have no defense. But that's, that's, that's what I mean, you know, that we get to see Jesus is working here. We get to see the stuff that precedes it. We get the before. Because if we had read that Jesus had just landed on the shore and gone straight to teaching or gone straight to the miracle, like, sure, that wouldn't, wouldn't have been any less incredible or insightful or exciting. But you see, in this slow reveal of the kingdom of God, we get to see his working. We get to see what comes before. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. See, this is what preceded the teaching and the miraculous provision. This is his motivation. He is moved with compassion. It is his compassion and his love for them that is the driving force for them and also for us. That is his driving force towards us, is compassion. This is who he is. And we need both. You know, we need the power and we need the overflowing love. They are of equal importance. Because later on in Mark, we're going to read about Jesus' death on the cross, which was humiliating and excruciating and all for us. 
And then we'll read about his incredible resurrection, which secures our freedom. And it was miraculous power that raised him from the dead. But it was overflowing love that sent him to the cross. We need both. The kingdom of God is not simply one of power. If it was, it would be cold and unfeeling and impressive, sure. But it is not simply one of power. It goes hand in hand with overflowing love. And actually, the order that we see here, the way it's written down, the order that we see it written here in is really important because I think it shows us something of how Jesus will deal with us. And it shows us the the fullness that he holds out to us as well. It's like he's saying, don't just be satisfied with something exciting. And don't just be satisfied with hunger being met. But come and stand in the full picture of who I am for you. So let's look and see. First, number one, he went first with love. He had compassion on them. And if we don't think that's important, then we're kidding ourselves. He let himself be moved. Remember, he was tired, you know, he was knackered, and so were his friends. But he let himself be moved with love. He let his compassion lead him. And you know, this, this is how Jesus postures himself towards us as well. Love first. And it's all over the Bible. Here are just a few examples. You might know some of them. In, in John, the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world. In Mark, chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus is having this conversation with this young guy who he has to say something kind of hard to But the bit that we get before says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And in John 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, love one another as I have loved you, so you should love one another. As I have loved you. You see, when when you come to Jesus, You are met by his love first. And you never stop being met by his love. You never stop being greeted by the love of Jesus. Being welcomed in by the love of Jesus. Have you done that? Have you let Jesus meet you with his love today? Have you let him greet you? with his love and welcome you with his love because that's what he does first he had compassion on them first he loved them then then second he fed their souls he taught them which in that climate seems like a pretty crazy thing to do because you see he didn't actually respond to what were probably their immediate desires there 
You know, they were there saying like, Jesus, tell us, how are you gonna save the Jewish people? Are you really who we think you are? You know, this is really exciting. What's your plan? How can we get involved? No, in his compassion, moved by his love, he sat them down and he taught them many things. See, the first move of a strong military leader in a pretty insecure kind of cultural climate, I imagine, would be to give you a weapon and teach you how to use it, right? But not here. We get to see a little bit of who Jesus is here because he knows what's going on. He knows what they're thinking, he knows what they want, and he knows what's to come as well. And because of that, he knows what they really need. And so Jesus equips them with understanding. He equips them with assurance. He sets them up with an understanding of what the scriptures say and of what that means for them. And this is what he does. This is what Jesus always does. He fixes the inside bit first. He fixes the bit of us that will last. Because your job will change, you know? You get a new one, one you like more or less. You will graduate at some point, hopefully in four years, if you've just started. You know, you'll move. You move house, you might move city. Your relationships will change. Your family dynamic will change over the years. And Jesus knows this, you know? If you managed and were very organized to have dinner before you came out of here, then I can guarantee you, you're gonna be hungry in a few hours because that is how your body works, you know? It's just obvious, that's what happens. And Jesus knows this. So he does the deep thing first. And we don't often like that because we are impatient. But here, with these crowds of people, we see Jesus do what he does all the time. He feeds their souls. You know, there's a reason that it says elsewhere in the Bible, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. Because we all know that when we seek the other things over and over, when we seek them first, we will never, ever, ever be satisfied. How many times have I said, if I just had that, I would be happier. How many times have I said that to Jesus? You know, if I just had that, just in case you don't know, if I just had that, I'd be happier. I'd be more secure, whatever. And sure, actually, that's that's probably true on some level. I probably would be happier but I wouldn't be satisfied. I wouldn't be satisfied. My soul would still be longing for something. You see, the more you fill up on the stuff, the harder it is to recognize the longing because it gets muffled. It gets covered up, but it doesn't go away. Have you let Jesus get to the heart of you? Have you let him feed your soul?
Now hear me correctly, I'm not saying that it's wrong to be hungry. It's not. And you know, it won't go away by pretending that you're not. Hunger is not wrong. Hunger for food or for other things, hunger is not wrong. And you shouldn't diminish it either, you know? It's, it's counterintuitive and in fact a total lie to believe that if I just stop being hungry for that thing, then God will fill me. It's not true. But the condition of your heart is really important to Jesus. And so he goes there first. So have you actually stopped to let Jesus feed your soul? Have you let him do the thing that he wants to do in you first? Do you even know how to do that? Because it sounds good, right? I mean, it sounds exactly like something you should say in church. Have you let Jesus feed your soul? But how do you do that? You know, what does that look like when I get out of this building? Well, it will require something of you. But it's not actually that hard. It's not complicated. You spend time with him. You spend time with Jesus. You invite him into your day, whether you feel like it or not. You know? You sit with him in silence or with words. You let him tend to your soul in the quiet place. You read your Bible. Get God's word on the inside. You pray in whatever way works for you. But you make space in your life for the tending of your soul. Because we all know that the getting of things and the doing of things only does us for a moment and any gratification that we get from it depletes. Jesus, shepherd of your soul, wants to go to the inside first. He loved them and then he fed their souls. And then thirdly, he fed their bodies. You know, because he still knew that they needed the actual food in order to not be hungry anymore. You know, they actually needed real life bread and butter. They needed the, they needed the thing. I am someone who is rarely unprepared, which I like to think is an excellent quality. Um, so when I travel, I uh, generally have like a whole list of things. I've done a lot of research and I know a lot about the place that I'm going to and I know what I want uh, to do when I get there and I probably have like a list of restaurants I want to go to and I have all the things done. When I buy something new, I reach like expert level on that thing to the point where like all of my adverts online are tailored towards that one thing for like a long time after I have bought it. So, yeah, whatever you need to know about the things that I've bought previously in the past, you can come to me because I'm pretty much an expert. My point is, I am rarely unprepared. Um, and the thing that just always stresses me out about this story is, like, I definitely would have 100% not shown up without my lunch. You know? <laughs> like, how did 5,000 people be that unprepared? Clearly, here we have a class A example of being unprepared. But it is also possible to be overprepared. What do you miss out on by covering every eventuality yourself? By the best intentioned self-sufficiency? My line very often is, well, no one else is going to do it for me. Really? See, the question here is, do we let Jesus feed us? 
do we actually allow room for him to provide for us? This is not about absconding from responsibility. You know, this is not saying like, oh, I really need a new place to live. God will provide for me. And then you do absolutely nothing about looking for somewhere to live. You know, that's just silly. But this is a submission thing. You know, this is a surrender thing. It's about letting go. Essentially, it's about trust. And I think the first part of this story can show us something about the second part. Because you see, in letting Jesus feed our souls, we learn how to trust him to feed our bodies. Because as he fixes the inside, we get ready for the stuff on the outside. He loves us. He feeds our souls. He feeds our bodies. And then we're satisfied. Verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. Jesus invites us to a feast. And it is the best feast that you could ever imagine because it does for us what we could never do for ourselves. It lets us see his power on display in our lives in amazing and sometimes miraculous ways. And it satisfies us to the very depths of our souls. But we will never get any of it if we don't sit down. Jesus invites us to a feast. I said at the beginning that reading these stories is like an invitation to come and stand in the middle But I think a correction on that is that it's an invitation to come and sit at the table. A few months ago, we did a series on Psalm 23. You might know it. It starts, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And there's a bit in that psalm that says, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. In the midst of the things that are hard or that are coming against me. He lays a table for me and he says, sit down. Jesus is a good shepherd. You see, that's why at the beginning of this story um, in Mark, it says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that's not a new theme in the Bible. It's actually all over scripture. There's some references in the screen. You can write them down if you want and, and look them up later. You see, the people of Israel were often described again and again as sheep without a shepherd. And then in the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And that's not a coincidence. Jesus shows us here that he is the good shepherd. The ultimate shepherd. Shepherd of our souls and of our body. Because if all we got was the feast of physical needs met, we would be satisfied for about five minutes. And then we would want the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. But this feast that Jesus invites us to is one of fullness, and he knows how to go about it. He welcomes us with love. He tends our souls deeply first. He provides for us the things that we need and we're satisfied. He is the shepherd of our soul and our body. And we can see in this story of power and of overflowing love that when Jesus shepherds us, we learn not only who we are, 
but we also learn how we should live. We learn how we are to live. Because there are two parallel stories that are going on here. We have the story of the crowd and we have the story of the disciples. We learn from the crowd about ourselves. That's what we've been talking about. We see Jesus as provider completely. He feeds our souls, he feeds our bodies, he's the perfect equipper and he knows what he's doing. So don't skip a step. Let him welcome you with his love today to tend to the deep and sometimes painful parts of your heart. Allow room for him to provide for you. But you see, it doesn't just stop there. It's not just all about the crowd. We learn from this story something of how we're to live. Because see, the disciples were there as well. You know, they got in on the action. They were part of the whole thing. And it's the same for us. We get in. We get to play. We have a part in this revealing of the kingdom of God. I mean, sure, they don't get it completely right, but when do any of us? Jesus doesn't exclude them on account of their gaffes or their stumbles. He shows us a play here that has a continuous element to it. We get fed soul and body, and then we get to feed others. Those 12 baskets that were left over, what do you think happened to them? I mean, it doesn't actually tell us, but I think Jesus was a pretty eco guy. So I'm pretty sure that they fed again. I'm pretty sure that they didn't go to waste. I think that this is a miracle that kept rolling over. Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus calls us to a new way of being with him, and he calls us to a new way of living as well. One that extends beyond ourselves. Now, it might not extend to 12 baskets of bread and 5,000 people. It might just extend to your neighbor or your colleague, your flatmate. But it for sure extends. Because the kingdom of God is not just one of power. But it is also one of overflowing, overflowing love. Let me pray. So Jesus, we invite you to come in and do what only you can do and to do whatever it is that you want to do here tonight. We want to be open to you. And we want to be willing and ready to receive. So I pray that we will grow in trust with you this evening. But we need to learn to trust you again, that we will trust you. And we will accept your invitation. Jesus, will you come and feed our souls? Will you come and tend to our hearts this evening? And will you help us to trust you for provision again? Come, will you be with us?